Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talis, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Thomas Pradeux, Senior Researcher at CNRS, which is the National Center for Scientific Research in France, and the University of Bordeaux. His new book, Philosophy of Immunology, is just out from Cambridge University Press. Vaccines make us wholly or partly immune to disease, such as COVID-19. But what is it to be immune? What is an immune system and what does it do? In its beginnings, immunology was conceived of as the science of the self-non-self distinction, where the immune system was the self's system of defense against pathogens, the non-self elements invading the self. The immune system was also thought to be a very sophisticated system possessed exclusively by vertebrates. In his new book, Prade explains why these traditional conceptions have been upended over the past 20 years or so. And he defends his view of the individual as what he calls an immunologically unified chimera. It is now accepted that even single-celled organisms have immune systems and that those systems are also active in tissue repair and maintenance and the regulation of foreign entities that are not part of the body but are not pathogens either, such as the gut microbiome. Prade also speculates about future directions of immunology with respect to our understanding of psychiatric illness, given new discoveries about the overlap between the immune system and the nervous system. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Hello, Thomas Prade. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello. Nice to meet you. Um, so this is, I'm very excited to be talking about the philosophy of immunology, which is the title of your book, but also the entire topic. I mean, it's the, you know, pandemic in the middle of the pandemic, immune systems and immunology and vaccines and all that is very much on everybody's mind. So, uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk with a leading philosopher of immunology about, about the philosophical, um, uh, implications and issues that arise in immunology. Um, before we get to the to the book, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I mean, how you came to the philosophical interests you have, and how you came to write this book. So I've been trained as a very classic, uh, traditional philosopher. And in France, uh, being trained as a classic philosopher is very classic. So uh, uh, I went through the École Normale Supérieure and the Paris-Sorbonne University, so in Paris, and then became an associate professor in philosophy at the Sorbonne. And uh, already back then, I was interested in biology and even in immunology, because my PhD thesis, in fact, was about uh, identity and immunology. So in a nutshell, the idea is that immunology is full of interesting and even fascinating uh, philosophical concepts. So that was was what was really the, the incentive for me, or really the idea was to try and use my uh, philosophical knowledge to better understand why this field was so much uh, filled up with uh, philosophical notions and philosophical ideas. So that was the initial move. And then uh, in 2014, I decided to leave the Sorbonne and to join the CNRS, uh, so the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique, which is my employer here in France. And I decided to join uh, an immunology lab. So now I'm part of uh, an immunology lab. So you see, it's even more important for me to connect the philosophy and the immunology, uh, given that my daily life is a daily life with immunologists, biologists, and medical doctors. And together, we try to think about what the immune system is, what it does, and so on and so forth. That's that's very interesting, because a lot of philosophers of science are in you know philosophy departments or logic and philosophy of science departments, rather than actually directly embedded 
uh, or, or part of, not just embedded, uh, but actually part of uh, a lab, right? So, so that gives you, you know, front, front bench knowledge of what is going on. So what, yeah, what, yeah, I mean, what, yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, that was really the idea to be, to be where things really happen because I've read immunology since, uh, you know, I started my PhD, uh, uh, so, so a long time ago. And, 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 and that PhD led to my first book, The Limits of the Self. Uh, and that was really quite, uh, an adventure in itself. But then, I realized that I needed to know immunology not so much as it appears in publications, but uh, really, uh, you know, uh, at the bench, really like uh, the production of immunology in a, in a biology lab is, of course, very different from what you can read in papers or in textbooks, of course. So, yeah, I really wanted to do that. And, and, and then on that basis, I... I uh, had the idea of coordinating the few places in the world where you have uh, similar experiences. What I mean by that is that we created a network called the Feeling Biomed Network, which means philosophy in biology and medicine rather than of philosophy of uh, uh, philosophy of, of biology and medicine. And the idea by creating this network was really to put together the few places in the world where there is the similar model of uh, uh, philosophers working directly with scientists and trying to address scientific questions together with scientists. So yeah, I agree with you. This is very special. Uh, I don't know if it's better or, or less good than something else, but at least this is different from the usual model of philosophy of science, which most of the time is more in philosophy department than in, in science uh, departments, of course. Yeah, I mean, we could have a whole conversation on... Uh, you know, on what difference that makes, you know, sort of being in the, you know, in the lab itself and, and what sorts of contributions uh, you actually make. Because for a lot of people, you know, philosophy, philosophy of science is, is kind of, um, uh, it's a bit of a mystery what philosophers can say about science, um, at least on the yeah. part of many, many scientists, for sure. Um yeah, there is. Yeah, there is always this. This. Yeah, I. I, I understand. We can uh, uh, talk more specifically about immunology. Just one word about this. Uh, really, I think that this. Uh, th this question from scientists is legitimate. We have, I think, to better explain what exactly we do, and I think we do uh, collectively two different things. One is what I call philosophy on science. We talk about science. We, for example, explore what the scientific theory is, what the scientific explanation is, and this is very important. And the second branch is what I call philosophy in science, where here really the idea is to try to contribute to science through philosophical means. So yeah, I just want to say this connection with, with, with science is very important. But of course, here we are more, uh, uh, we, we want more to talk about the specific case of immunology. Right. So what what is... Um... What is an immune system? Well, let's just start with basics. What What is immune system? What are its components? Um, what do they do? Um, how widely are immune systems distributed in the biological world? Yeah, so these are all excellent questions. So clearly, there is a, there is a very uh, uh, traditional answer that is still something you will find in most textbooks, but the view about the, the different questions you just asked, the, the view changes changed very significantly in the last uh, 20 years or so. So the, the traditional view is that an immune system is a system of defense against pathogens. So bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, etc., etc. Uh, that's the first aspect. The second aspect was that uh, immune systems are to be found in vertebrates, in even what was called before higher vertebrates. Um, and, and the reason for that was that the immune systems that had been explored was were mainly immune systems based on lymphocytes. And we all heard about lymphocytes, especially in the, in the current context. But there, there was this idea that immune systems were about defending the organism against uh, uh, pathogens. And this was something that was so sophisticated and complicated that you would find it only in a very limited number of living beings. And in fact, what happened uh, in the last 20 years or so is two types of extension. One extension is uh, 
an extension in, in phylogenetic terms. So the idea there was to say, to, to determine if they, there are immune systems uh, across the tree of life. You know, can we find immune systems in, in vertebrates? And the answer was yes. Can we find immune systems in plants? And the answer was yes. Can we find even immune systems in microbes? and especially in prokaryotes, for example, bacteria and archaea. And here the consensus since uh, around uh, 10 years or so uh, is that indeed you find some immune system even in archaea and bacteria. So just imagine in terms of you know which organisms have an immune system, uh, the view uh, has completely changed. And that, I think, is something super interesting. But of course, of course, the question of where you find you, you, you're going to find some immune systems is very much connected to the question of what an immune system is, of course. So you're going to you know, try to find in different species uh, something that you have predefined, even though maybe you can then adapt your definition depending on what you find in nature. So this is really something important. Most of the time, when people uh, say, oh, we have found an immune system, for example, in archaea or bacteria, what they mean is that we have found a system of defense against pathogens. So that's, that's, that remains a very important idea for a majority of uh, immunologists and microbiologists when they want to explore those questions. But what is very interesting for me is that in parallel, immunologists have um, really understood that the immune system is involved uh, and often plays a central role in all sorts of different activities, not just defense, for example, but also tissue repair. So, for example, tissue repair, but also tissue maintenance, tissue homeostasis, and also other aspects like our very own development are to a large extent dependent on activities of the immune system. So you see, what I found very interesting is that the immune system has been extended both in the sense that now we found immune systems basically everywhere in the living world. And second, it's simply not true anymore that we can reduce the immune system to a system of defense against pathogens. And this, I, 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 I think this opens up very interesting avenues uh, in terms of uh, concepts, but also in terms of experiments and even maybe in clinical terms. Okay, so, so what, are the, what are the components or are there necessary components? If, if you have immune systems from single cell organisms all the way through all the invertebrates, um, what are the components that you, that of a immune system? Yeah, so, so in fact, there are ways of... So one question is, do we share some components? And to some extent, we do, but it's very difficult to find components that are going to be shared by all the organisms uh, across the tree of life. So most people, in fact, adopt a functional approach to the immune system. So uh -huh. the immune system is something that does something. And this something, as I said before, is very often... Uh, defense against pathogens. But it's, it's nonetheless true that, especially at the gene level and sometimes at the protein level, you can find some similarities across the tree of life. But clearly, um, this is more often seen as a sign of maybe uh, you know, a similarity in functional terms rather than proof. So I can give you one very simple example. We find, for example, similar genes in some insects and mammals, and those genes in mammals are involved in uh, immune responses. So we assume that there are immune responses or they help immune responses in insects. But in fact, it turned out that these genes are important for insect development, but not so much for uh, defense, so immune defense in the sense I defined before uh, in, in those insects. So you see, most of the time, uh, the question is more at the level of the function, and then we uh, think about components. That being said, of course, if we reduce a little bit the question, uh, the similarities in terms of components between, for example, humans and mice are huge. So if you have a look at mammals, for example, it's clearly uh, both uh, similarities at a functional level, but also at the level of the components. And just to, to answer your question, in humans, for example, we can say that a, a, an immune system 
is composed of a certain number of organs. Uh, for example, the bone marrow, the thymus, uh, 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 the spleen, etc., etc., lymph nodes, etc., etc. And we can also make a description at the cell level. And for example, say that macrophages, lymphocytes, dendritic cells, etc., etc., are part of the immune system. So we can do a description in terms of components. But I just wanted to emphasize uh, relate, re, uh, regarding your question that uh, most of the time we prefer to adopt a functional response, which means that even if we do not find the same components, it can still be said that we have an immune system in two different species, for example. Okay. Does Is there any danger that maybe um, uh, by going, so, in a sense, purely functional, uh, there are problems, perhaps, of saying that, you know, well, all these things count as immune systems, but it's really not a, a, a natural kind, you might say. It's not, it's not, you know, we're just kind of expanding the definition to include more organisms, and now it's gone, gotten out of hand. Well, yeah, um, I think... Yeah. yeah, I think this is, this is a major challenge, but I would certainly not say that we don't have a challenge on the more uh, structural slash component uh, view. So both views have huge problems because, as I said, uh -huh. uh, if you want to find similarities in terms of components, it's going to be extremely difficult. And it's going to be even more difficult now that the activities of the immune system have been extended, as I said before. So, for example, if I if I if I see that there is a type of macrophage in 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 a species, uh, uh, and and I say, oh, cool, there is a macrophage. So I, I'm going to say this is immune because this is a macrophage. And then I realize that these macrophages in these species they do mainly something related to development, for example, not so much uh, in terms of defense. Of course, I could stipulate that this is my definition of immune. But that would lead to some problems. And exactly in the same way, as you said, the functional response or functional approach to the immune system is also certainly prone to many problems. I, in my case, I think it's much better to adopt a functional response and to be completely explicit about the definition you adopt, because this leads you to uh, the possibility of saying, okay, with this definition, I have immune systems here, there, and there in the tree of life. And then, of course, if we want to change that definition, well, we can update it or change it uh, radically and then, uh, you know, use it again to see what's going on in the tree of life and determine what has an immune system in the tree of life. Whereas in terms of components, I would say that we know that it's a dead end. I mean, it's, we know that it's not going to work. It's not going to work in pure terms of components. So you see what I mean? You, the challenge you mentioned is very important. I think we have to keep in mind constantly, but I don't think it suggests that adopting a component-based view would be better. Okay, so one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview was this idea of identity as being a, a kind of a core issue that philosophers find within immunology. Um, and uh, you, you also talk in the book about how Immunology as a, began as the science of self non self discrimination, which which goes with this idea that the immune system is a system of uh, defense against pathogens, and the pathogens, of course, would be the non self bits that are attacking the self bits, and the and and so you need to discriminate between these two in order for the one to defend against the other. Um, how has immunology sort of changed, moved on, elaborated from that, um, you know, fairly uh, straightforward way of thinking about immune systems and self and non-self? Yeah, I would say that it's uh, the view of self, non-self was absolutely central uh, in the 1950s. And it remained very central for a long time. And now, now it's different. Now, most immunologists... Um, don't really like the very dichotomous, you know, way of talking in terms of self and non-self. So most will say, oh, this is much more complicated. This is kind of a, con a continuum. So we cannot simply talk about self, non-self. So I think this is a good point. I think immunologists uh, 
you know, have realized that this was too simple and, 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 you know, and this is probably much better to think the way they think now than before. That being said, I think that the self-non-self remains the main conceptual framework in which they interpret their, their own data. So some examples here. When immunologists work on autoimmune diseases, the self is almost necessarily, like conceptually, is there in the uh, uh, in the disease they study. So this is very important. So, for example, they will constantly try to determine why someone creates, for example, autoantibodies. So you know, antibodies against the self uh, in that kind of uh, diseases. So that's something which is uh, you know extremely important. And second. Uh, and this is connected uh, to what we to what we discussed before. For example, when uh, there was this idea that maybe prokaryotes, so uh, bacteria and archaea, have an immune system, and this is in fact the CRISPR-Cas immune system, which is the most important one and the most famous one. So the one that led to the very recent Nobel Prize in, in chemistry. Uh, in fact, this uh, CRISPR-Cas system, so seen as, as an immune system in prokaryotes, was immediately interpreted in terms of self and non-self. So I was lucky enough to interact with the people doing the research on CRISPR-Cas, and I asked them, you know, why are you talking in terms of self and non-self? And they said, well, because this is obvious that this is an immune system because this system is able to destroy phages, which are the, the viruses of bacteria. And I said, yeah, but you know, maybe um, in immunology at the moment, people think that maybe it's not so much self, non-self, maybe it's a little bit more complicated, a little bit different. And these people who are super clever and, you know, and excellent in their research, I think we're not ready at that time to think about the immune system differently. So I think there is really something about this concepts of self, non-self, which is very powerful uh, very interesting to interpret data, interpret data, and I think immunologists still believe that this is a very important way of thinking about the immune system, even when those immunologists say that this is too dichotomous and too simple, etc., etc. And I must add something: uh, many people in the field of immunology provided very interesting critiques of the self-non-self. For example, a very famous immunologist in the 1990s and in the 2000s was Polly Matzinger. Polly Matzinger is an American immunologist. She's fantastic, and she proposed the danger model instead of the self-non-self model. And on this basis, she really provided a strong critique of the self-non-self and then arguments in favor of her own theory about the immune system. And I think she was extremely useful to make uh, many immunologists realize that the arguments, uh, experimental and conceptual, they use to think in terms of self, non-self, are maybe not as strong as they thought. So I would say this is really a field which is extremely interesting also because it's very conceptual. Immunology is very experimental, very uh, clinical, but also this is one of the most uh, uh, theoretical fields in the biological sciences that I've seen. I've worked on other domains of the biological sciences, and that one is really special. Uh, people like to think in conceptual and theoretical, theoretical terms. So I would say that in the present situation, people know that we need to do something with our concept and theories, but there is no theory that won the fight against self-non-self. There's no, you know, paradigm shift or there's no strong paradigm, paradigm strong enough to really um, uh, eliminate the self, non-self, which I think is a very interesting situation because I've been doing that for a long time and it's still kind of the same situation. I mean, in the last 15 years or so, it remains the same. People don't really like the self, non-self within immunology, but they still use it constantly and they still think in those terms, I would say 99% of the, of the of their situations. Interesting. Um... So what is your, you propose a, an alternative immunological individual or, uh, uh, yeah. So how, well, what is your picture instead? Or if you, if you, if you had the power to sort of shift the, the, uh, the view of 99%, uh, away from the non-self, the self non-self to something else, what would you shift it to? 
So, yeah, I would love to do that, but this is difficult. And in fact, this is what I've tried to do. I mean, my my book, The Limits of the Self, uh, uh, was about the limits of the self, non-self as a, as a theory. And clearly, uh, you can see uh, echoes of that in the, in the recent book, where I tried to synthesize what has been said uh, in the last years about this uh, debate. And I tried to be, of course, as descriptive and objective as possible. But I, o- I also, of course, my own biases. So in my own research, uh, I tried to do two things. One was to say, okay, the self-non-self theory cannot be right. It's just, it's not possible that it's that it be right for conceptual, but also for experimental reasons. Uh, in a nutshell, the idea was that so much data accumulated that proved that we could not think in terms of self and non-self, that we had to abandon this uh, theory at least in the way it was suggested in the 1950s and 1960s. So basically, one of the most interesting aspects for me was research on the microbiome or the microbiota. So I really followed that because I was a very good friend of uh, Gérard Hébert at the Pasteur Institute, and we are still very good friends. And I started to follow the literature, talking with people like Scott Gilbert and others who were very interested, Margaret McFonai, uh, interested in those questions. And I was like, okay, if it is true that there are so many microbes in each of us and they do so many important things in us, what happens from the point of view of the immune system? The immune system should see that as foreign, therefore non-self, and should eliminate those. But it doesn't. So why? And I became very interested in what is sometimes called immunoregulation. Immunoregulation is a weird idea, but the idea is that the immune system perfectly sees an entity as, you know, a foreign entity, but it does not destroy, eliminate that entity. So I became very interested in that. And this is why I suggested the two uh, different avenues I mentioned before. The first avenue is very scientific and very theoretical. This is something I did with colleagues of mine, uh, especially Eric Vivier, who is a, a very famous immunologist in Marseille, and we suggested the discontinuity theory of immunity. So this is very scientific, but in a nutshell, the theory says the question is not whether an entity is foreign to, to you, The question is only a question of kinetics. So we suggest that the immune system detects things that change rapidly in the organism. So basically the idea is that the immune system has been selected through evolution to detect sudden changes, you know, sudden molecular changes in the organism. So I can go into the details, but this is maybe not that interesting. But that's what one way of uh, trying to show the insufficiencies of the self-non-self was to suggest an alternative theoretical framework that leads to other experimental and clinical predictions. So that's the first point. And the second point was we need to rethink what an individual is. The individual cannot be uh, an individual conceived of on the model of the self-non-self. And what I mean by that is that the self-non-self suggests that an individual is something which is defined by the origins of its constituents. So if something comes from me, this is me. If something comes from the outside, it cannot be me. And this, I think, is a very powerful idea, uh, also with a lot of echoes in philosophy. So, for example, I was very interested at some point in trying to connect some ideas of Leibniz and ideas about the immune system, because I think that idea about the immune system has, in fact, very strong and deep metaphysical origins. But that being said, I was more interested in the idea that we should redefine the immunological individual. So there is one idea that I kept from the traditional literature, and this idea is that the immune system is absolutely crucial to understand individuality. So I can say more about this if you will, but the, the, the assumption was the immune system is important for individuality. And then I said, okay, we want to delineate the individual. One way which would be very interesting to do that is simply to ask the immune system to delineate an entity for us. So this is just a metaphoric way of talking. But what I mean by that is that we can observe in nature the different ways in which an immune system 
will accept some entities, reject other entities, and we're going to see that that immune system is very important for determining the delineation of this uh, individual, and we will realize that the immune system does not discriminate what is going to be part of the individual on the basis of the origins. So in a nutshell, the idea is that something is not going to be part of you because it comes from you. Because in fact, many things that comes, come from you are in fact rejected by the immune system. And many things that come from the outside, for example, the microbiota or many components of the microbiota do not come from you. Clearly, they're, they're, they've been there for a long time, but they do not come from you, but they are not rejected by the immune system. So I was like, oh, that would be super interested, interesting to simply say, okay, let the immune system uh, uh, tell us what the uh, boundaries of uh, biological individuals are. And on that basis, I suggested the concept of heterogeneous individuals or chimeras with the idea that if we let the immune system individuate in the sense of delineate uh, 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 biological entities, what we'll find out is that we are all chimeras, we are all impure entities in the sense that we are full of foreign material, which in fact is actively tolerated by the action of the immune system. So this is what I suggested, and I think this is also um, something that might uh, open up uh, you know, new um, new conceptual, experimental, and perhaps therapeutic uh, avenues. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the whole autoimmune thing. I mean, where where it seems like parts of the self attack other parts of the self. I mean, you're you're kind of getting away from that very crude that very crude picture. But what is happening in in autoimmune diseases? Yeah, this is this is quite fascinating, and as you know, there are an, there is an increasing number of these autoimmune diseases, especially if we connect autoimmune diseases and what is sometimes called autoinflammatory diseases, and many hypotheses about why there is this increase in autoimmune diseases. As you probably know, one important hypothesis is called the hygiene hypothesis, and suggests that the immune system, when it's not busy uh, dealing with pathogens might be, uh, you know, reoriented towards the, you know, self-competence or auto-competence. So I think this is interesting to think about this rise in autoimmune diseases, but also to understand exactly what's going on in those diseases. There is a lot of diversity in this uh, autoimmune disease. It's very difficult to generalize. But what I think is extremely important to understand is that we all do autoimmunity. I mean, this is a, a fundamental aspect of recent immunology to show that if you don't respond to the self uh, with your immune system, your immune system is massively dysfunctional. It's perfectly necessary to respond to the self. One very simple example is the apoptosis of dead cells, which is absolutely crucial. When we do tissue repair, a lot of this response to tissue repair is a response of self-elimination of entities that are perfectly self, but need to be eliminated by the immune system. So autoimmunity in a non-pathological sense is in fact absolutely necessary. And once you understand that, you understand that then it becomes a continuum of autoimmune responses where, in fact, it's normal to do some autoimmunity, but maybe not too much. And here it's very important to distinguish between two types of autoimmune diseases. Some are systemic, for example, lupus, and some are local. Many of, of these autoimmune diseases are local, for example, of Systemic sclerosis, for example, even though some form, as the name suggests, can be at the systemic level. Many autoimmune diseases related to one specific organ, for example. What is, I think, very interesting is that we realize now that the problem is not necessarily to produce some autoimmune response, but maybe what happens in people who have an autoimmune disease is not so much at the level of the effector response itself, but at the level of the regulation. In other words, we all do some autoimmunity, but we have some regulatory mechanisms that calm down this autoimmunity constantly. We have, for example, what we call regulatory T-cells. And without those regulatory T-cells, we know that mice, for example, do a lot more of autoimmune diseases. So increasingly what's coming is that maybe it's at the level of the regulation rather than at the level of effector cells and effector molecules that 
uh, autoimmune diseases should be understood. So this is really a fascinating topic. And where I work uh, in the lab, we work uh, directly with the hospital. And one of the main diseases on which we work is lupus. And lupus is extremely interesting for that reason, because it's mechanistically very interesting. And also because when patients, uh, 90% of them are women, when patients talk about their disease, they have in a certain way in terms of psychology and rhetorics, they have imported the self-non-self view. So sometimes they ask, what is that that my immune system hates myself? Or what is that that my body destroys myself? And I think this is very interesting to both address that question and also maybe to change the question a little bit because it's probably not the best way, in fact, to think about what an autoimmune disease uh, is, even though it's going to, of course, take time to change the way people think about those diseases. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the chapters you you talk about cancer, right, uh, specifically, um, and you, you define it in terms of a breakdown of cohesion uh, in uh, organisms. Could you say a bit about um, cancer from the immunological perspective? Yeah. So, so, I mean, cancer is, of course, a huge topic, but what has been around for more than 60 years is that the immune system certainly plays a very important role with regard to cancer. This uh, really dates back to the 1950s, even before. In fact, at the end of the 19th century, there were, there were many hypotheses about this. But the hypothesis was a little bit eclipsed or abandoned for some time because there were some experiments suggesting that when you modify the immune system of mice, they don't do more cancer. But then these changed completely uh, in the year 2000s. And this was really basic work, basic research, fundamental research of people working on the immune system. And they realized that, in fact, if you really take into account the diversity of the components and branches of the immune system, you see that, indeed, without a strong immune system, the risk of having uh, cancer, uh, of having cancerous tumors, is in fact much higher. So this led to all sorts of very interesting uh, research. And uh, in 2018, the Nobel Prize was for immunotherapies. And immunotherapies is something that now everybody has heard about. We all know that this is, uh, you know, very interesting. That this is very powerful in some patients. Also, that sometimes this is extremely expensive, and this is something that everyone discusses quite a lot, especially in the in the lay press in the United States. I've seen that this is something that has been discussed quite a lot, and the reason for that is that in some cases the results were spectacular. We have to keep in mind, though, that immunotherapies work in about twelve to fifteen to 20% of the cases. So there's a lot to do at the moment in terms of why do some immune systems respond so well to these therapies and why, and and bodies in general respond so well to these therapies and why others do not. So that's the clinical aspect of your question, which I think is very interesting and exciting because this is something going on right now. Now, in terms of concepts, you know, more like the kind of things I want to say about the, 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 the connection between cancer and the immune system. But of course, this uh, is related to the, to the immunotherapies and all the research that have been done recently. My view is that indeed, the immune system is one of the most important systems that regulate the cohesiveness of multicellular entities. Of course, this is not a definition of the immune system. This is a property of the immune system. For example, uh, if we want to say that there is an immune system in prokaryotes, uh, we will immediately see that we cannot adopt as a definition of the immune system that the, the immune system is a system of cohesion of multicellularity because of course it would be you know it would not it would not apply uh, so clearly I would stick to more functional definition of the immune system but the consequence of having an immune system in multicellular organism is that that immune system, is sometimes described as a policing mechanism. I don't really like the term policing, but this is something that Rick Michaud and many others have suggested in the literature, which is called the literature on the literature on major transitions in evolution, which is a very interesting literature uh, with you know key people like Maynard Smith or in philosophy, for example, Samuel Kasha. So I think this is very interesting, but I think this is you know leads us to think. Uh, 
is that possible to have a multicellular entity without an immune system? And my answer is no, that's clearly impossible. So we have to think when we think about the transition from unicellularity to multicellularity, we have to ask what kind of immune system there was in unicellular organisms and what kind of immune system emerged in multicellular organisms. And for this, we can think about a comparison with uh, uh, model organisms which are very interesting. For example, social amoeba, for example. Social amoeba like Dictyostelium have a unicellular uh, aspect in their life cycle and a multicellular aspect in their life cycle. And as you know, we also use uh, other model organisms like Volvox, for example, and sometimes uh, other, other, other examples of uh, uh, entities that are both unicellular and multicellular. And just one thing that was for me so fascinating was to read a paper in 2007 in Science where they showed that when the dictyostelium, so the social amoeba, uh, you know, these are small cells, independent, and they can uh, come together and constitute a slug that can move and go somewhere else. And in this somewhere else, there is more food. And then you go back to unicellularity and then, you know, they can, they can feed on the bacteria that are there. And what was so interesting for me was the demonstration in that paper that when you have this temporary multicellular state, some cells called M cells specialized in immune-like phenomena of phagocytosis, etc., etc. It, of course, it's not evidence that multicellularity necessarily means that there is a kind of immune system. But I think this is just one additional argument in favor of that idea. So really, I think that the immune system can be seen as a sort of regulator of the cohesiveness of multicellular entities. And of course, one way to uh, test this idea is to see what's going on in cancer. I don't think cancer uh, should be simply defined as a decohesion of uh, the multicellular organism, because this is very vague. This is just a description, and that description could apply to something else than cancer. So what we did with my uh, biologist colleagues in the last two years or so was to think about a more precise way of thinking about this connection between multicellularity and cancer. And what we're doing at the moment, in fact, is to determine exactly what kind of characteristics of multicellularity are disrupted in cancer. And the other way around, we have built up models where we can play with the characteristics of multicellularity, for example, the inhibition of cell proliferation or the regulation of apoptosis, etc., etc., and we determine in a model of yeast, so in an experimental model of multicellularity, we try to play with the characteristics of multicellularity to see what kind of disruption of these characteristics can lead to cancer. So you see what I mean? I think it's very important to think about three actors. Multicellularity, or three concepts rather, multicellularity, immune system, and cancer. And my feeling, but it needs to be uh, substantiated and demonstrated now, my feeling is that, indeed, the disruption of some specific characteristics of multicellularity lead, leads to cancer. And we have to better understand how it works, and we have to understand why, in those cases, the immune system let something happen that is going to be detrimental to the rest of the organism. And that is something which is super interesting. The immune system is both capable of destroying tumors, eliminating tumors, or controlling tumors, and also, and this is paradoxical and very interesting, in many cases we know that the immune system helps tumors helps cancer in us and in mice. We know that very well. So my question is how all these three uh, concepts relate one to the other and how can we prove that maybe the, the, the idea is not so much that cancer should be described as a disruption of, of multicellularity or a decohesion of the individual, but rather to go into the details of what characteristics exactly of that multicellularity when disrupted leads to cancer. Do you have any any thoughts about which characteristics those might be? Well, those characteristics are 
very classic in their current uh, uh, description. So, for example, it is very often said that uh, a multicellular entity regulates its uh, cell proliferation. So there, there will be control on cell proliferation. And the general idea is that uh, a cancer can be defined as an uncontrolled cell proliferation. So people often say, well, this is one characteristic of multicellularity which is disrupted in, in cancer. And I, I, I believe that it could be the case, but I think that this remains too vague. Uh, I mean that for the moment, people just make a list of things that are disrupted in cancer, and they say, oh, you see, that's a disruption of multicellularity. In my view, it's going to be much more complicated than that. I think that some of the characteristics of multicellularity are going to be more important than others in the causality of cancer. So I really place myself at the level of of a causal question. And here, I believe that maybe some characteristics will be more important than others, and maybe some are necessary steps in uh, the uh, uh, genesis of a cancer, while others maybe are uh, uh, downstream in the process of cancer. So this is really something we're working on at the moment. So I cannot give you a definitive answer about this, but my intuition is that some characteristics of multicellularity will be more important than others in this process, and maybe some constitutes Sort, constitute sort of hubs. You have a hub where you have to have this characteristic disrupted, and then you can have other disrupted, and then leads, this leads to cancer. I'm, I'm not sure this is true. And for now, it remains uh, a conceptual hypothesis. What I think, nonetheless, is that if this is true, and if we can prove that in different model organisms uh, in which we're working, on which we're working at the moment, um, this could really lead to interesting experimental and maybe even therapeutic uh, questions, because that question has not been raised this way in cancer research. So you see, this is a way of saying we can connect multicellularity, cancer, and the immune system in very original ways and go beyond the mere, um, you know, uh, you know, idea that has been repeated again and again that cancer is a disruption of multicellularity. I think we can go further by going causal and and being much more specific about what exactly is is disrupted and which description of which characteristic uh, leads to cancer. Cool. Um, So some of the things that you were saying before about that species, I don't know what it was that where the individual, the social bacteria, I think it was. So it's not... it's not a bacteria. It's a, it's a eukaryotic microbe. Sorry, but yeah. No, this is, so it's a social amoeba. We often call it right. social amoeba. Okay. So what was interesting to me was, well, the social amoeba itself, but it, it also made me think about groups. Like, so at the social level, um, where you have a lot of individuals, you know, people, as the case may be, um, and then they come together and... There's a big question, of course, as to whether there are entities that are groups, right? So on on analogy, we might say with a multicellular individual where you've got a lot of people and then you they all come together, at least temporarily, and uh, they don't... <laughs> I don't know if they move like a slug the way you describe, but in some cases they might. Um, do you draw any of those sorts of um, sort of analogies or possible implications of thinking about immune systems to uh, to social phenomena? Yeah, so this is a great question. And to be honest with you, this is exactly the topic of my uh, research project at CASPUS at Stanford University, where I'm supposed to be since September. But because of COVID-19, I could not go. So I'm trying to do my project, uh, you know, with the Zoom meetings, and we have many of them. And this is great to be part of this uh, cohorts of uh, CASPUS fellows at Stanford. But exactly that was my question. I wanted to use the incredible intellectual resources of Caspers to think more about this question. I've done some social sciences when I was younger, uh, doing quite a lot of sociology, in fact. And this is absolutely striking that every biological individual is also a group. You know, this is also a population. It really depends on, uh, you know, the level at which you want to see that uh, entity. So, for example, 
Claude Bernard, uh, in the 19th century, said that, in fact, what we perceive as an individual is a population of cells, suggesting that, in fact, the most important biological phenomena happen at the level of cells. And I think the situation is even more like what Bernard said in terms of the microbiota. So if you take into account the microbiota, you realize that we are all population of heterogeneous cells with different origins, different genomes, etc., etc. You know, my friend Rob Knight often says that we are 99% of bacterial genes and 1% of eukaryotic genes of human, of human origins. So I think this, this kind of idea suggests that indeed every individual is a group. Then the question is, okay, so if everything is a group, then what kind of unity and cohesiveness different groups can express. And clearly, from this point of view, it's very interesting to find um, mechanisms or pathways or processes that are going to give you a scale of individuality. So by this, I mean that everything is a group, okay, but some groups are more united and more cohesive than others. And my suggestion in my research has been that here again, the immune system can be helpful because the immune system is going to give you some degrees of um, control over the cohesion that we described before. So, for example, I would say that some social insects, because they have some social uh, immune processes, exhibit a sort of immunological individuality at the level of the group. This is the case, for example, in some termites. So, for example, the work of uh, Sylvie Kramer in Austria is about this. This is called social immunity. And I think this is super interesting because it suggests that we have with the immune system a tool to determine to what extent a group is an immunological individual. And this gives us all sorts of ideas about, you know, what kind of ontology we can associate with this individuals, which are not just groups, but also individuals. And then comes your question, you know, what kind of analogy with the social life in general? And here, I think I've been extremely careful in my work before, and I really need to learn more from the sociologists, political scientists, economists, and all the rest. So again, that was the idea of the Kaspers, uh, the Kaspers uh, research project, because I think there's really something to um, conceive of about the way in which Groups in societies are constituted. I'm not saying that we have obvious equivalents of the immune system in societies. I'm just saying it's going to certainly be a question of cohesiveness, unity, and mechanisms to control over this cohesiveness. And this we know exists in society. So, for example, there are ways of controlling a group in societies. And I'm not saying this is the equivalent of an immune system in terms of, you know, for example, having a police or whatever. I think those comparisons are probably not going to be that useful because we are going to be biased by the the vocabulary. But thinking about the different ways in which uh, groups individualize themselves into, you know, strongly individualized entities, I think that is a very, very interesting question. And to some extent, COVID-19, you know, confirms something that we knew in immunology, but that was not that well known in the, in the lay public, uh, which is the very uh, idea of having social immunity. A social immunity, it's not metaphorical. This is really the idea that to a certain extent, there is a certain degree of immunological individuality in populations. And that, and you know, and this is related to this idea of social immunity. And this is not to say that my reflection would be limited to that question. I'm just saying immunology itself has already started to think in terms of multi-level, from molecules to cells to tissues to organs to organism to groups. And et cetera, et cetera. So immunology already tells us something about this. And then the question becomes, if we want to have a look at societies in general, what kind of general devices or maybe processes we can find in societies that are functionally similar to an immune system without necessarily being an immune system per se? That, that's my intuition about that question. Okay, interesting. Um, so we're... we're- we're close to running out of time, but I, I did want to get to the whole idea at the very end of the book about neuroimmune systems um, and, you know, the relationships between 
the immune system and the nervous system and potential implications for cognition and, and psychiatric disease and things like that. Um, uh, and I know that this part of the book was more uh, hypothetical or just, you know, sort of sketching some of the possibilities here. Um, so I don't, I don't really have a specific, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of a specific answer here, but could you maybe just say something briefly about how you see the relationship, you know, developing perhaps between, you know, immunology and then looking at nervous systems and cognition? Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating question. And as you said, I mean, the chapter is very low-key and modest because I know that this is a huge field and I don't know enough about the field to really give details. So what I did in the in the chapter was really to start with simple observations that are in the scientific literature and that say that a lot of psychiatric diseases are associated with phenomena of inflammation and sometimes autoantibodies. So, you know, the autoantibodies we mentioned before. And that, to me, was super interesting. Like, is that precise enough? What are we talking about? Et cetera, et cetera. So this is something we want to do in my team uh, with uh, a young Peter Kansman, who is a neuroscientist, who is joining our team soon. And he's going to develop a full research project on autoimmunopsychiatry. For now, what I've done is very modest. What I've done is to say, okay, everyone talks in immunology for, you know, it's been, it's been the case for 20 years at least. People talk about neuroimmunology. But what is exactly meant by this idea? of neuroimmunology. So what I did was very simple. I just mapped some possibilities because I think people are very vague most of the time when they say, uh, you know, there is a proximity between these, these two systems or so they interact, etc., etc. So what I did in the chapter was simply to say, okay, one way to think about uh, the, the, this question is to try to find out the similarities between the nervous system and the immune system. And there are many indeed. A second way is to think about the overlaps between the two. A third is to think about the interactions between the two. Uh, and a fourth is to think about the two systems in terms of origins. So do they have the same origins in evolution? And the fifth, which is not the most interesting for me, is in terms of control. Which system controls the other? And of course, in fact, the answer is that both control the other. I mean, this is not a very interesting question because control is always a very related thing in, in biology. But in terms of, um, for example, in terms of overlaps and interactions, I think this is extremely important to clarify those issues because I'm going to give you a very simple examples. You can write a very good paper in nature or science by just saying, oh, something we, th we thought was a neuropeptide is in fact important for immune defense or the other way around. There have been many papers about this in the, in the last years. And I think, you know, this is probably not enough. I mean, we need to say more to say something very important about the interaction between the two systems, because otherwise it might be the case, and this is very much uh, related to a question you had before in terms of stipulation. What I mean by that is that we should not be too much dependent on the preconceived idea of what the nervous system is and the immune system is, because otherwise we will simply say, oh, actors which we thought were part of the immune system are also in fact part of the nervous system or the other way around. And I predict, because this is easy to predict, because this is already the case, I predict that we will find thousands of examples like that, because in fact, the cells and the molecules involved in the immune system and the nervous system do all sorts of different things, as I said before. So I'm really not surprised that they can be involved in nervous-like phenomena or immune-like phenomena. Which I, what, what, what I think is going to be much more interesting is to determine to what extent we can cure people or or at least try to cure people and 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 you know and try to uh, ease a little bit the symptoms they have by uh, using classic uh, molecules uh, used in immunology for example so anti-inflammatory molecules etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is something which is going on in the clinic so again in our hospital in Bordeaux this is something which is tested at the moment and which I think is extremely promising so I would say we need to clarify the issue we need to understand things mechanistically rather than in terms of uh, entities and third we need to think in uh, therapeutic terms in, in, in with the idea that those diseases are very central in our societies and maybe we need to test other um, 
therapeutic tools than the one we have tested in the last 20 years or so, or in fact, in the last 50 years or so. Very good. Okay. So um, we're just about out of time. Can you make, what's, uh, what's on the horizon for you? I mean, you just mentioned a, a project, I think at Stanford or something. Um, are you, is, is that your main focus at the moment or? I would love I would love it to be my main focus, but because I cannot be at Caspers at Stanford, so Caspers uh, is a, is a center of behavioral sciences and political science at Stanford, and I really wanted to go to you know be uh, in touch with these people doing uh, the social sciences. So this is the project on individual and group, and I cannot really do it uh, by being in Bordeaux. So I really want to go there. I still plan to go there in the spring. We'll see if it's if it's doable or not, given the context. And my other project is what I told you about cancer. So I'm really, I'm really now thinking about cancer as a central issue. And some philosophers of biology have worked on cancer, not too many of them. And I really think that uh, bringing to that debate uh, the immune system will make a huge difference. So that's my bet. And this is what I want to focus on for the next uh, five years or so. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um... I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your book, and it's been a it's been a really interesting uh, conversation. And uh, good luck with with both the projects. Um, and uh, that's it for now. So thank you. Thanks thank again. You. Thank you very much for a very nice interview. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.